Well, it is so good to be back up here again after being gone the last two weeks in Guatemala. I uh, really appreciate Chris Kenner and Mike Eason for filling in those two Sundays. Um, I think it's good for y'all to be able to hear from somebody else every now and then, and I uh, appreciate them for being willing to step in and, and do that. It uh, feels like I've been gone two months instead of two weeks, just been itching to get back here and, and preach the gospel again, and uh, I believe the Lord's given me a word for us this morning that uh, I think he, he's going to do a lot with. Um, we're going to be continuing our series in First Thessalonians that we started several weeks ago, so if you have your Bibles, why don't you turn to chapter 3 there, but also once you find that spot, turn back into Acts chapter 17 and put something there. Because here in just a second, we're going to, after we read this in First Thessalonians, we're going to read a text there in Acts chapter 17. But first, picking up where we left off a few weeks ago, we finished chapter 2. Today we're going to begin with chapter 3. So let's all stand together as we receive the word of the Lord. First Thessalonians 3, 1, Paul says, Therefore, when we could endure it no longer, we thought it best to be left behind at Athens alone. And we sent Timothy, our brother and God's fellow worker in the gospel of Christ, to strengthen and encourage you as to your faith, so that no one would be disturbed by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we have been destined for this. For indeed, when we were with you, we kept telling you in advance that we were going to suffer affliction. And so it came to pass, as you know. For this reason, when I could endure it no longer, I also sent to find out about your faith for fear that the tempter might have tempted you and our labor would be in vain. Let's pray. Lord, I just thank you so much for your word, God. I thank you for the message that, um, Lord, I believe that you have given me to share with us this morning. And God, I do believe that you intend to do a mighty work in, in someone's life this morning through it. So, Holy Spirit, I'm asking you to come and just have your way. Would you reveal Jesus to us in ways that we need to see him so that we can live lives that more accurately reflect him and glorify him? Lord, we just thank you for the opportunity to gather here, to grow in you, or draw us closer to you and closer to one another. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. <clears throat> In the first part of chapter 2, Paul said that his bringing the gospel there in Thessalonica came amid much opposition. There was a lot of opposition to what he was doing there and uh, struggle that they were going through. And so, you know, you wonder, well, what exactly was that opposition? What did that look like? Well, we know because it was recorded in Acts chapter 17. So if you have your place there, turn back. If not, it will be up on the screen. This is what happened when Paul first came to Thessalonica. Starting in verse 1, it says, Now when they had traveled through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And according to Paul's custom, he went to them and for three Sabbaths reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and giving evidence that Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead and saying, This Jesus whom I am proclaiming to you is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, along with a large number of the God-fearing Greeks 
and a number of the leading women. But the Jews, becoming jealous and taking along some wicked men from the marketplace, formed a mob and set the city in an uproar. And taking, uh, attacking the house of Jason, you didn't know that was a Bible name, did you? Attacking the house of Jason, they were seeking to bring them out to the people. When they did not find them, they began dragging Jason and some brethren before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have upset the world have come here also. And Jason has welcomed them, and they are at contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. They stirred up the crowd and the city authorities who heard these things, and when they had received a pledge from Jason and the others, they released them. So that's the opposition that Paul is referring to in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. And so after enduring all this, he establishes the church there, and installs a few elders, and then Paul leaves and goes to Athens, knowing that they were going to continue to face this opposition, that it wasn't going to stop. And so he goes to Athens where you just get this sense that he can't even concentrate very well on what he was to do there because uh, this young church in Thessalonica weighs so heavily on his mind. He's dying to know how they're holding up amid all the persecution that he knows they are facing. And finally, then in the text that we just read, he says, I couldn't endure it any longer. I just had to find out. And so they send Timothy to go check out how they're doing, and Timothy returns with a very good report. They are still as strong as ever, not wavering at all in their allegiance to Christ. And so Paul sits down and he writes this letter to let them know how happy he is to hear this and to encourage them to keep it up. And in the words that he writes here, we find encouragement to keep it up too in the life, living the life that God has called and saved us to. Back when we were in chapter 2, we looked at how if you are a follower of Christ, you are going to face opposition in this world. There's no ifs, ands, or buts about it. It is going to happen. Once you become a child of God, you now have a target on you because we live in a world directly opposed to truth. And remember, truth is not just a particular set of ideals. Truth is a person, and his name is Jesus. And this world doesn't want to have anything at all to do with Jesus. It will tolerate Muhammad. It will tolerate Buddha. It will tolerate pretty much every other religion there is, but it will not tolerate Jesus. That in itself should be pretty telling. Those who believe that, you know, all religions are pretty much the same, it doesn't matter which one you follow because they're all going to lead to God at the end anyway. I mean, that right there should be an indicator that one of them is not like the rest. And there's probably a reason why it receives so much more attack than all the other religions do. And yes, there is a reason. It's because it's the one that is true. And it stands alone amidst a world of deception. Everything in this world that's not aligned with Jesus is directly opposed to Jesus. And so if you belong to him, you are going to be attacked. I can illustrate it this way. I'll put it in sports terms so it come a little clearer to some of you. If you are a Dallas Cowboy fan and you go to a game in Philadelphia wearing your Cowboys jersey, 
you're going to be attacked. You're going to be heckled. You're going to be cussed at. You're going to have things thrown at you. You're probably going to have a beer or two poured on you because that's just how Philly fans are. They despise the Dallas Cowboys, and so if you go there associating yourself with the Cowboys, you are just inviting attack to come upon you. That's what it's like to be a Christian living in this world. Now, let me qualify that with this. I didn't say that if you claim to be a Christian privately or only when you claim to be one when you're around other Christians that you're going to face a lot of opposition. No, I'm talking about identifying yourself as belonging to Christ once you leave these doors. You're doing it by the way that you live and the things that you say out in the world. I mean, if I go to a Philly game just wearing normal clothes, nobody's going to attack me. They're not going to know I'm a Dallas Cowboy fan, even though I am. And I can tell myself I'm a Cowboy fan and just blend in with everyone else. I mean, you can essentially do the same thing as a Christian, which I'm afraid is happening more often than it should. We'll wear our Christian jersey when we're with our team, but when we're not, we just try to blend in. Why do we do that? Because we don't want to face the opposition. That is going to come in this world. When I hung up my gloves after quitting boxing for nearly 10 years, I started coaching a team in college. And there were a few guys that had never boxed before that wanted to give it a try. And there's one guy that I will never forget because first thing he said was, I want to know the best way to avoid getting hit. That's what I want you to teach me first. So I looked at him and I said, you want to know the absolute best way not to get hit? He said, yeah. I said, don't get in the ring. (laughs) You're guaranteed not to get hit if you do that. And then I told him that might actually be the best thing for him to do if that was his mindset. Because you can't box worried about getting hit. It's going to happen. And so you got to learn what to do when you do get hit. You learn how to take a punch, how to counter one when it comes at you. Instead of trying to avoid the inevitable, you learn how to deal with the inevitable when it comes. If all you do is try to avoid it, you'll get knocked out for sure. That's the same mentality I think we should take as Christians. If all you do is try to avoid the opposition in this world to you being a follower of Jesus... Eventually, you're going to follow the world. You're going to be overcome by the opponent. Instead of trying to avoid it, you just need to stay true to who we are in Christ and learn how to deal with it instead when it does come. Because like we learned back in chapter 2, the opposition, the persecution, the rejection, it's going to happen. It just is. In fact, look what Paul said there in verse 3. First Thessalonians 3. He said, For you yourselves know that we have been destined for this. He's talking about the persecution that they were going through. He says, We've been destined for this. He's saying that Christians, those who follow Christ and stand for truth in a world of deception, are destined to be attacked for it. That's a pretty strong statement. And it's why I chose to title this message with that, that we are destined for this. There is no avoiding it. 
The only way to avoid opposition to Jesus is to not identify yourself with Jesus. That's the only way. Just blend in with everyone else and do what everyone else is doing, and then you won't be attacked. I can tell you right now, if you do that, you're also going to be missing out on so much more than you realize. We'll get to that in a minute. But first, I want us to look at something Jesus said back in Luke chapter 14. Luke 14, starting in verse 27, he said this, Whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Now that right there would have been enough for one to, some of them to go, Okay, I'm out. I, I'm not doing that. Because this crowd that Jesus was talking to, they knew exactly what he meant when he said, Take up your own cross. And they knew it meant that this was not going to be easy, to say the least. And then he goes on, for which one of you, when he wants to build a tower, does not first sit down and calculate the cost to see if he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who observe it begin to ridicule him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. And then he goes on saying, it's like a king doesn't go to battle without first first sitting down and assessing the strength of his enemy. And so the whole point Jesus is making here is that, following him will cost you. And if you're going to follow him, you better count those costs and know what they are up front. Meaning that you understand the risks that are involved in following Jesus in a world that is completely opposed to him. Because you can't get down the road after following him a ways and encounter hardship and go, oh, wait a minute, I didn't know it was going to be like this. Yes, you did. Because Jesus gave you plenty of a heads up that it was going to be like this. If you're going to follow him and not just identify him in name only, you've got to know that you are destined for hardship and affliction. It is your destiny to lose some things in this world if you follow Jesus. You'll probably lose some friends, you'll be ridiculed. You'll be rejected, for sure. You might lose your job. You'll be falsely accused of doing things that you didn't do. And there will be times where you'll feel like you are all alone. Some of you may be thinking, well, Jason, you're sure not making Christianity sound very appealing. You haven't heard anything yet. (laughs) Listen to this, what Hebrews 11 says it costs some folks. Starting in verse 36. And others experience mockings and scourgings. Yes, also chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawed in two. They were tempted. They were put to death with the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, ill-treated, men of whom the world was not worthy, wandering in deserts and mountains and caves and holes in the ground. That was their destiny for standing in truth and being obedient to God. Following Jesus is not, you might encounter some opposition, but I hope you don't. No, there is no might or I hope not. It's going to happen. It's your destiny if you belong to Jesus. And look, I get it. 
I mean, this would not be a message that you would hear in a series on how to build the membership of your church. Nobody's going to listen to this and go, yeah, sign me up. I'll take that. The thing is, I don't have to try to make Christianity as appealing as possible. Because you don't become a Christian because you weighed all the other options and chose that one because it was the most appealing. No, you become a Christian by the mercy of God falling on you right where you are and doing for you what you could never have done for yourself. You aren't saved because you made a good decision. You're saved because God opened your eyes to the truth of the gospel and he saved you. He brought your dead spirit to life and replaced your heart of stone with a heart of flesh. The way the Bible describes it. And when you see Jesus for who he is and understand what he's done and you know who you are in him, it won't matter what it will cost you in this world to follow him because you know it would be so worth it. So why would anyone in their right mind follow Jesus after knowing what all lays in store for him in a world that is so opposed to him? Well, it's because being declared right with God, when you know that you are nowhere close to being worthy to be declared right, is worth all the opposition you could ever face. It's because having the approval of God is worth a whole lot more than having the approval of man. It's because being made a son or a daughter of a father who is for you and not against you, who provides all of your needs, who loves you unconditionally and is guiding every one of your steps, is worth it. It's because being given the righteousness of Jesus is worth so much more than being given anything that this world could offer. And because, like Romans 8.18 says, the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared to the glory that is to be revealed to us. That's why. That's why. Because it's worth it. You know, history is filled with inspiring and heroic stories of people who stood strong and brave in the midst of opposition, knowing what it would cost them up front. You had the attack on Fort Wagner during the Civil War that was created in the movie Glory, where there was only one approach possible to attack the fort. It was this one little strip of land that had the ocean on one side and a swamp on the other. And they knew that the leading regiment to lead that attack was going to suffer tremendous losses. They were going to be the tip of the spear, but they were counting on that regiment occupying the enemy long enough to where the reinforcements could then come behind and breach the fort. In the movie, the 54th volunteered to be that leading regiment, and they did suffer heavy losses. They knew they would, but they did it anyway because they deemed it a worthy cause. You had the men in the Alamo, knowing that there were no reinforcements coming to help them. They had exhausted all efforts, knowing there was only about 200 of them facing several thousand of the Mexican army, and that they knew that to stay and fight rather than to leave or surrender meant certain death. 
But to them, the cause of freedom and independence was worth it. So they stayed, and they fought hard, and every one of them died. And they became Texas legends in doing so. In a few days, we're going to celebrate the independence of our country. Celebrating the time where just a small group of regular people just trying to scratch out a living in a new world decided that they had had enough of the oppression of an evil government. And so being the mouse, they decided to slap the face of the lion. And they defied the most ruthless and most powerful geopolitical force in the world at that time, the English Empire. A ragtag group of soldiers went up against the most highly skilled and most funded financially army the world had known, and it cost them dearly. They knew it would, but yet they thought that freedom was worth it, and they won. And then you have the ultimate hero, Jesus Christ, who stepped out of the perfection of heaven into this sin-cursed world for one purpose, to die. He came to die. He was destined to hang on a cross and bake in the noonday sun so that you and I could sit in here today knowing what it means to be loved by a good father. Hebrews 12.2 says that for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. It was the joy of knowing that we would be set free from the curse of sin. The joy of fulfilling his father's purpose. The joy of taking our shame so that we could receive his righteousness. The joy of making the same place for us in the father that he enjoyed as a son. The joy of defeating death, hell, and the grave. All of that, the joy of all of that was worth the suffering and agony of the cross. Jesus didn't try to avoid the affliction that he was destined for. He embraced it. And he says that in order for us to follow him, we have to be willing to embrace it too. Look again at what Paul says there in 1 Thessalonians 3 in verse 5. He says, For this reason, when I could endure it no longer, I sent to find out about your faith for fear that the tempter might have tempted you and our labor would be in vain. Satan uses the opposition that we face in this world to try to tempt us. To tempt us in believing that it's not worth it. That we need to avoid that opposition at all costs. He tries to get us to believe the, the same lie that he used to get Adam and Eve. And that is a lie that something other than God will satisfy Like, being accepted by your friends will satisfy you more than being accepted by God. Or that financial success is more satisfying than having success in your integrity and your character. Or that being at that party, young people, will be more satisfying 
than staying true to who you are in Christ and refusing to take part in the things of the world. That's Satan's most successful lie. It worked in the Garden of Eden, and it's been working ever since. That something other than Jesus will satisfy. No, it won't. Because God made you in such a way that it is impossible for anything in this world to satisfy you the way that only he can. And the more you believe that lie and pursue those things, the more empty and frustrated you'll be. And if you don't wake up from it soon, you'll just then fall into the even more dangerous lie that more of what doesn't satisfy just might satisfy. When you believe that, all of a sudden you find yourself with the claws of addiction buried so deep into you, you just can't quit. You don't know how to get back. And so what you'll ultimately discover is that, yeah, following Jesus will cost you, but following the world at the end of the day will cost you a whole lot more. A whole lot more. I'm sure there's probably some of you in here that are facing that very reality. You've gone so far down that dark road that You don't know how to get back. And even if you could, you're doubting that God would even have you back. You've ignored him just too many times. Now you're just too tainted, too dirty, too far gone for him to let you back. If you struggle with that, I want you to listen to this promise in God's word. Lamentations 3.22 says this, The Lord's loving kindness, it never ceases for his compassions never fail they are new every morning every morning they are new and available for you great is your faithfulness you can never run so far from God that you've outrun his mercy and grace you can't There's probably others of you here who you haven't quite gone that far, but you have lost sight of the worth of Christ. And your fear of being rejected by the world has drawn you closer to it. So you're starting to pursue those things so that you won't be rejected. This morning, I'm telling you right now, it is the mercy of God that is screaming out to you saying, I love you too much to let you go any further. Love you too much to let you go any further than you've gone now. You know, so many people have this idea of Christianity that it means you don't get to have any fun anymore. That Christianity is the religion of don't. You don't do this. You don't do that. It's all about the things you don't get to do anymore. Well, if you view Christianity from a religious standpoint and think that the whole goal of it is to stop sinning, well, then, yeah, I can understand why it would seem that way. But if you view it from the standpoint of the gospel, you'll see that that's not what it's about at all. It's not about what you don't get to do anymore. It is about what you now do get to do. What you do get to do now. You see, before Jesus saved any of us, 
We all couldn't help but live in the utter sin of this world. There was no choosing to do good or bad. Everything we did was bad. Everything we did was sinful because we were completely tainted by the the rotten stench of sin. And everything we touch was marked by that. We just left that same stench of sin on everything we do, even the good things that we did. That's why God says even your best deeds are like filthy rags to me. That's what it means to be bound in the curse of sin and held under its power. But when God's mercy breaks through and he opens your eyes to that pitiful condition and you see that Jesus is the only remedy for it and you put your complete trust and your hope in him, we are given the righteousness of Jesus and released from sin's power, which means you are now able to do something that you weren't able to do before. You are now able to say no to sin. You can say no. You now have the ability and the power to do something that the rest of the world can't, which is to refuse sin. And there is so much more that you get to do now. What you get to do is be in a relationship, one where he speaks to you and you talk to him and there's this interactive, loving relationship with the creator of the universe. You get to fulfill the purpose that you were created for. You get to be a part of the big story that God has written. You get to operate with supernatural power with his spirit living inside of you. You get to help others, help release others from the same prison that you were held in. You get to know what it's like to be loved unconditionally. You get to experience the life-changing, never-ending grace of God on a daily basis. And you know what else you get to do? You get to stand in the face of opposition and not give in, knowing that you are the possession of a mighty warrior who holds everything in the palm of his hand. That's what you get to do. Here's the deal. You know, I don't have to guilt you, anyone, into living for Christ and not giving in to the world. Man, I've heard sermons like that ad nauseum. And they only work for about as long as the altar call lasts, and then that's it. They go right back into it. But I don't have to guilt anyone to it because if you know Jesus for who he truly is, not just know a lot about him, I'm talking about intimately knowing him. And saying no to the things of the world is just something you naturally want to do. It's not, oh, I have to say no. No, it's, I want to say no. That doesn't line up with who I am. That does not line up with who I am in Christ. Why would I want to now be a part of something that he set me free from and paid a high price so that I could be free from? It is a privilege to be able to say no to those things, no matter what opposition I'll face in doing so. So the reason then why so many people who claim to be a Christian but follow the world way more than they do following Jesus is simply because they don't know him. I'm telling you, this area of East Texas right here is eat up with that. We've got over 200 churches in this one county alone. And yet you wouldn't know it by looking around other than seeing these buildings on every corner. Where's the power of that? 
This whole area has remained unchanged for the most part, despite the fact that there's 200 churches here. You know what that means? It means we got a lot of religion, but very little Jesus. We got people, a lot of people that know a lot about Jesus, but apparently not as many who truly know him. Now, I'm not saying that this church has it together and has all the right answers. We don't. But I do know there's a difference in knowing about him and truly knowing him. And that may be some of you here today. You know a lot about him. You know he can get you out of hell. But you don't know the satisfaction that only he can bring. You know about what he did at the cross. But you don't know that he's worth whatever price that you'll pay to follow him. Others of you may have known him like that at some point in your life. But for whatever reason, you've lost sight of his worth. And you followed after something else. So here's what I want us to do. I'm going to pray here in just a second to close this message. And after I do that, we're going to have a time, like we usually do, of prayer and ministry. And if you're one of those ones that I was talking about, who have found yourself so far from God that you don't know how to get back, I'm wondering if he will even take you back if you could. I would just ask you to come down here to the front and let some of the leaders of our church that will be on these front rows pray with you, tell you how you can get back. If you're one of those who haven't gone quite that far, but you know that you're just now starting to follow after things that God's not leading you to, and you know it's his mercy that's stopping you right now, would you come and let us pray with you too that you'll remain strong. And if you're one of those that have realized that you've known a lot about Jesus, but you haven't really known him in the way that I'm talking about, I want to pray with you that he would reveal himself to you in ways that you've never known before, in such a powerful way that the things of this world just disappear. And it doesn't matter what opposition you face in knowing him Because you finally see that he is worth it. Yes, there will be a price in this world of following Jesus. But no matter how high that price is, he's worth it. And he wants you to know his worth this morning. Let's pray. Lord, I know that you are here. And I know that you desire to be known. Not just known about. You paid a high price so that we could know you. And Lord, I do pray for those in here that have gone so far down that road. 
Lord. They don't even know how to get back. Lord, would you just extend your grace and mercy and draw them to you? Lord, those that need to see you for who you are, God, would you give them that miraculous revelation? Lord, I pray that all of us would see this morning that nothing this world can offer us will satisfy the way that you can. Lord, I pray that we would be so full of your love that the fear of being rejected by the world, God isn't even on our radar anymore. Lord, I know that there are people in here that you made sure would be here this morning, that you had this day in your mind for a long time. And so, Lord, I pray that they would come to know today as a defining moment in their life because it's the day that you reached down and you saved them. You brought a prodigal back home. So, Holy Spirit, we just submit ourselves to you and ask you to have your way. Jesus, make yourself known. In your name I pray. Amen.